Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others and the planet. Welcome to episode 101 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. All of us work with others. Sometimes those professional relationships are important enough that we call them partnerships. But what does partnership in a workplace really mean? What makes some partnerships exceptional while others not? The experience of meaningful partnership can be the exception rather than the norm. Both leaders and teams can become frustrated with each other, creating a two-way street of frustration that can lead to dissatisfaction, disagreement, despair, and sometimes even departure from the organization. I am so pleased to have Dr. Tim Franz and Dr. Seth Silver on the show with us today to discuss their new book, Meaningful Partnership at Work. We will discuss how to create and maintain a meaningful partnership that is an elevated state of connection, cohesion, coordination, and collaboration that makes all parties accountable for the health of the working relationship and the success of what they are doing together. Let's get into the episode. Seth and Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Brad. Um, Seth, what what's your backstory? I want to get that from both of you, but what's led you on this journey to get to this place where you're writing books on meaningful partnership at work? Well, it starts with my time at Xerox. Um, After I finished my master's at Cornell, I started with the Xerox Corporation here in upstate New York. And that was an eight-year period where I got to be an internal consultant. And that led me to do team building and experience the disconnect between managers and teams. Uh, perhaps more about that backstory a little bit later. But as I left the company and started an independent consulting practice, I started working with all kinds of different managers, not just engineers, but people in finance and healthcare and higher ed and government, and realized that that disconnect existed all over the place. And so as I tried to help managers and teams have a better relationship and coordinate better and support each other more, um, just came to realize that there's a lot of managers who are frustrated, as you alluded to, there's a lot of teams who are frustrated and somehow they just didn't have the right language and the right tools to talk to each other and create these mutually supportive relationships. So that experience was, was in the head for a long time. And then COVID gave, gave me and Tim the opportunity to write, which we hadn't had before. Yeah, I'm glad you did. And I guess it's, as you talk, I can reflect on many instances of, I've experienced that myself or even directly been in that position myself. Tim, what about you? What, what's your backstory and what led you down this path? Well, Seth and I like to joke that he is the consultant who professes and I'm the professor who consults. And it really has been a, a, 
a synergy, our relationship. Uh, we met, I don't know, 2001 or so when I had moved to Rochester to take this job at St. John Fisher. I started in consulting and then left to get my PhD and, and move into academia. Um, and so this book with Seth is my third book, actually, and I've just had a fourth come out too. So I write about team development. My area is team development. Seth's area is leadership development. And it has always been a great relationship. We've uh, worked together on teaching. We've worked together on consulting. Uh, we've worked together on academic research and on writing practical papers. And now uh, this is our, our, I think, pinnacle, our culminating achievement here, this book together, which as Seth said, and I used this term before we were recording, this is one of what I jokingly refer to as a one of the pandemifits that came out. The, the pandemic was so bad for so many reasons, but here is one of those benefits that Seth and I all of a sudden had time to write. And we've been talking about this for a long time, and it gave us the time to sit back and make sense of what we wanted to say, to find our voice, and to really create this, this concept of meaningful partnership. People talk all the time about partnership, what it means. I'm in a partnership. I'm, and I'm not talking the legal term, but this idea of really being uh, trusting with the person, um, having empathy for them, having real deep respect, being aligned. Um, these ideas of partnership are what people refer to, but they use it very loosely. And we not only talk about what it is, but how to get there. So uh, it, was, it was a fun project for us to write about. That's neat. It's such a great um, backstory where you have this partnership between you both that, you know, helps produce such meaningful work during a. I was going to add, you know, in glasses of wine drunk together, in hikes taken together, in bicycling together, we would, you know, throw these ideas back and forth. And, and again, just the opportunity to sit down and do the writing didn't really happen until COVID. But with COVID, it was there we go. You know, we've got this gift of time. Ah, that's and, awesome. And that made it so much easier. So if you look at it, you, you had this gift of time with COVID and you chose to write meaningful partnership at work. Why, why that book? Why that topic? Well, I, I'll, I'll start with this one, Seth, and then I'll toss it to you because this, this concept, and I'm, I'm, I want to start because it's actually Seth's concept. This whole idea came from Seth and I'm going to give credit where credit is due here. Uh, back in, uh, I don't know, probably 2008, we started talking talking together about an organization development intervention that Seth has created called the Workplace Covenant. And I, I talked about how Seth is a leadership development expert and I'm a team development expert. And this book is neither of those. It's about the space in between. It's how do we get leaders and teams on the same page, working together, singing from the same songbook, um, moving forward on track, lots of different ways to say that. Um, and what we realized is that the book, our first title was Seth's Process, The Workplace Covenant. And we realized pretty quickly um, after we had written about 80% of the book um, that the book wasn't about the workplace covenant. This process that Seth developed that I love, ongoing continuous improvement process, the workplace covenant, is a tool. It's just a method. And the goal, the outcome, the top of the triangle 
is really trying to get people to understand what others expect from them, and more important, what we as leaders owe them, are obligated to do for them. So Seth, you can talk more now and uh, leap off that, but yes, this is Seth's idea here. Build on, thank you, Tim. Uh, I'll build on what Tim said. I, I mean, the covenant is the how, the meaningful part, the state, the mindset, the meaningful partnership between the partners. And again, we think broadly about partners just to expand on that. It could be manager and team. It could be two individuals. It could be two teams that have to work closely together or even two organizations and, and their respective leadership teams or a board of a nonprofit and the executive team of that nonprofit. So any two parties that have an important collaborative work relationship and are in fact in the same boat and interdependent, uh, this is a viable process for. So with that in mind, yeah, the covenant is the how, the mindset of partnership is the what, and hence we change the title. You know, you asked what kind of motivated us to do that. I mean, beyond the gift of time and the fact that Tim and I had been kind of ping-ponging this notion for about 10 years and discussing it over lunches and wines and other things. But I'd say it was it's the pain. It's the pain. I mean, in, in my full-time role as a consultant, yes, dabbling in professoring, uh, you know, I'm the consultant who professes occasionally, 14 years part-time doing that. But with all the different client work, there was always a, a level of dissatisfaction. Um, you know, on that one to 10 scale, maybe it was only a one or a two. Sometimes it was a nine or a 10. It just depended on the situation, but various levels of dissatisfaction. And, and we call it the, the dreaded four D's kind of an homage to the princess bride, uh, in some respects. And it's, it's the sequence of dissatisfaction, disengagement, despair, and eventually departure. And oh, by the way, right now in the economy, it's kind of prescient that we wrote the book because now in this sort of emergence from COVID, post-COVID thing, they talk about the great resignation, at least in the U.S., it's been close to 45% of the workforce has changed jobs in the last year and a half. The statistics are very high, and and the reasons are that they don't like what they're doing or they don't like with whom they're doing it. So, you know, this, this 4Ds thing is we feel that when people don't feel supported and they're dissatisfied with the relationship with their boss, the relationship with colleagues, the relationship with key partners, they go through this phase of dissatisfaction. And if it's not addressed, eventually over time, they become disengaged, which means they're passively looking for something else. Um, they're not bringing their whole selves to work. And eventually, if that doesn't change over time, months or whatever, then it becomes despair. They become somewhat depressed thinking, you know, my boss will never change. My teammates will never change. This company's culture will never change. I'm wasting my life. I got to get the hell out of here. And then departure. So it was in response to that, that pain. Uh, see it too often, and and it kind of motivated me, motivated me at least to, you know, put pen to paper as it were. Such and, a pertinent and, time for the book, isn't it? Sorry, Tim. It's like Australia is going through the same thing. Like we, and I'm sure most countries are, where people are moving like crazy. But there's a labour shortage, so it's huge amounts of organisational impact and people pain. Sorry, Tim. Right. No, that's okay. It's. Uh, I- this organizational impact, depending on which survey you read, it's between 40 and 60% of people are leaving because they have a problem with their relationship with their direct supervisor, their boss, whether that boss is a VP or company president, or whether it's a first line team leader. Um, All of these relationships are important and help people to stay. If so many of these leaders realized that they can And this, you use the phrase that we love, this two-way street of frustration. We have a process to do that. And that two-way 
uh, street up frustration and we give it away in the book. And the idea here is really to help people to see the value of working with somebody else in this meaningful partnership. I want to build on, on Tim's point there. A lot of the literature is, is focused on how employees have a bad relationship with their supervisor and their supervisor doesn't provide support. Ergo, they leave. And, and you know, something like 70% of voluntary terminations. But what we've discovered in the consulting work, and I've seen this up close, is the extent to which managers are pissed off with their teams. It's an underwritten about phenomenon is that managers feel abandoned by their teams. The teams don't stay late. The managers are staying late, doing the work, getting things ready for the next day. The manager's taking the heat with the upper levels. The manager's having to fight fires. And the teams just aren't there in the trenches to the extent the manager wants. And, and so that abandonment of managers by their own team is, is also kind of addressed in what we're writing about. Seth, I love that point because, um, you know, right from my early days at, in university, I was studying Japanese culture and Japanese work, and I don't know how it just sent me down this path. It's just a serendipity of what played out. But, you know, in, in the best of the best, when you come into the Japanese culture, there's, there's that element of respect, you know, but it's innately respect both ways. It's not a one-way street of respect. It's employees respecting leaders and superiors and right the way up, and then leaders and respecting their employees. It's a two-way street. What, what, what do you think plays out? And like, I know this is not all Japanese companies, right? It's not across the board. It's in the best of the best that they've got that two-way street of respect. But what stops that two-way street of respect in most companies? Let's just say generally anywhere in the world. Well, I, I think one of the, the biggest things, and it's where Seth started with this idea of, I mean, this process, this idea we talk about is really, uh, at its heart, a way to get people to communicate better, um, to really not just have a discussion, not just push things off one another, but have a, an authentic dialogue to really understand what the other side means, to have empathy and respect and trust in that relationship. And the reason for this is this idea that and I'm, I'm going to reach back to some things that Seth has talked about, um, that the, the leader in an organization says, you know, I, I like my team for the most part. They good. They're good. They do their job. But but I, I wish they would respond to my emails. I wish they would stay a little later when we're really pressed. I, I wish they would stick with their commitments that may I wish I wish. I wish. And that happens with the leader. And it also happens with the team. The team members are saying, well, yeah, generally, I really like my, my team leader, but I, I wish they'd support me more and get me those resources I need on time. I, I wish they'd respond to emails when I need the information. I wish they'd uh, put me in front of upper management so I can have developmental and stretch opportunities. I wish, I wish, I wish. And I think building that respect is trying to break down that communication barrier and find ways for people to talk about honestly their expectations of one another and their obligations, most importantly, their obligations to one another. And those expectations, taking those implicit expectations, making them explicit, taking what we need and turning them into obligations to one another creates that, that empathy, respect, and trust that so many leader team relationships need. 
So I'm really hearing there, guys, it's about open, honest, vulnerable conversations in, in many regards, and then taking behavioral action off of that to show that respect. So you, you, asked, you asked a question, and, and Tim's answer was was great. Um, I'd like to try it from a different angle a little bit. You asked what gets in the way of partnership, and you sort of briefly held up the Japanese model as, as often working well, and I, I can't comment. I haven't worked a lot with Japanese companies, but um, I will say that I think what gets in the way is short-term selfish focus, short-term selfish focus, because if they had a long-term enlightened self-interest, they would realize the success of their partner is their own success. And there is something of that notion in our book. We don't really write about it explicitly, maybe in a version two, we'll you know, have a few paragraphs on it, but there is this notion of enlightened self-interest. Um, and so if I am focused with this mindset of meaningful partnership and trying to help my partner feel supported and be successful, A, that's a nice altruistic thing to do, but B, those sorts of behaviors will come back to me. There is a reciprocity here. And, and, and that to some extent is the underpinning of, of a meaningful partnership. We, we have the metaphor in the beginning, you probably read it when you started the book, about two in a canoe. And the notion that I, uh, partnership at its best can be thought of two people in a canoe. And if you've ever canoed and you know what you're doing and your partner in the canoe doesn't, you know that the canoe kind of goes in circles or it goes zigzag and it's it's a very frustrating experience. I've, I've canoed with my wife and it's a very frustrating experience because <laughs> I grew up canoeing and, you know, she's like been in a canoe three times. And um, so, you know, the notion is that you paddle at the same time and you literally are breathing at the same time and you're using the same force and one's on the one side and one's on the other. And one of you decides to steer. It's usually the person in the back of the canoe that's doing more of the steering. And you know, that alignment, that, that mutual interdependence and mutual accountability for the success of where it's going, that, that's kind of a metaphor that we, we really value. Um, so that, that's getting, my take on your question. On, can I pose a question, guys, here? And this may go off topic a little bit, right? Because while you're talking about short-term thinking, I was just thinking of Australian and American and many cultures where innately we are short-term thinking, you know, very much today, tomorrow, maybe the year. And um, there's that Hofstede's model where he's done a lot of study on different global cultures and I love it. But you, what you, I hear you saying then, but to combat that I'm hearing with the canoe, we've got to be very good at getting alignment and focus. So things like strategic, strategic alignment, even within an organization and then down to teams that we're, we are, we have a common goal. We've got a common purpose. We've got a common vision of where we're going. That sounds like that's very important also. Absolutely. And it's it's that, you know, as Seth said, this analogy of two in a canoe, it, it's, it's not trying to get two more strokes of the paddle forward. It's focusing on two miles down the lake and that long-term vision, um, this idea of alignment. If you look down a railroad track, you know, there's two tracks, but if you look down, they come together on the horizon way down there. And so this long-term to me, having a vision and a strategy is, is absolutely essential and make sure everybody's on the same page, make sure that they're heading in the same direction. Seth, anything else? No, I, I think you, I think you covered that 
I think you covered that well. That's exactly right. Uh, what Brad was saying is, is that it, it uh, you have to get beyond the short term and it is absolutely about alignment and it is about this notion of mutual support and mutual success and having that mindset of I'm, I'm focused on helping my partner get there because a, it's going to help us, but it's also going to help me. Um, so. Well, so I can really hear the three thing, three things coming through so far as that authentic dialogue, then the alignment, and then the focus on really whether you're the team member or the leader, your focus is helping on the other one get there and that right, right. you're serving the other rather than serving yourself. So Tim, 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 the psychologist touched on this a bit earlier and he went, went through it fast. So I'm just going to put a little spotlight on it. ERTAP, E-R-T-A-P. So we, we have this triangle in the book and, and the top of the triangle is the, is, you know, the end state of meaningful partnership. And the bottom is the workplace covenant, which I, I think we'll talk about shortly. But in the middle is the psychological recipe. It's, it's you know, how, for, for the crop of partnership to grow, you need to till the soil with E-R-T-A-P. And that is empathy respect, trust, alignment, and then partnership, which we view as elevated to a state of meaningful partnership. So the partners must have a state of, you know, mute or must have some mutual empathy for each other, how they feel, how they see the project or the, the, the collaboration, uh, understand where they're coming from. The respect is, is kind of the diversity thing. It's where you come from. It's respecting different uh, backgrounds and skill sets and areas of expertise and ways of working. Um, and the trust, of course, is, is that notion, trust bank account that Covey talks about. It's having a full bank account of, of deposits in that trust bank account, being trustworthy. Alignment, we've alluded to. You can't have meaningful partnership and, and collaboration without alignment. And then we believe that leads to a state of partnership. But then that's not just ordinary partnership. In the book, we describe it as a meaningful partnership. Uh, Tim, you want to talk where meaningful came from? Maybe that's good good time to bring that story in. Yes, it's it's actually a very uh, unfortunate, timely event where we were writing about this idea of partnership, and then uh, unfortunately, the the well-known justice, Supreme Court justice in the U.S., Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, passed away suddenly. And um, when we're listening to the eulogies, which we were together and separately, uh, all the news stories, uh, so many people talked about. This idea that she led a meaningful life, that it was something more. And so we thought hard about where this is when we changed the whole concept of the book right at this point and said, our book is really not about the workplace covenant. It's not about ERTAP. It's about getting to this state, this pinnacle of the triangle of meaningful partnership, an elevated sense of cohesion, connection, collaboration, and coordination. So it's an elevated sense. It's not just that normal working together. And if you've had a, you've been in a good relationship at home or at work, you know what I mean by this idea of meaningful partnership. It doesn't happen very often, but we have to continue to work on these relationships, whether at home or at work, to get to that pinnacle, to get to that meaningful partnership. And in fact, we, we, we have a measure of alignment. Um, I'm talking about work and home to put these together for a second. Yeah. Um, we have a measure that we've created on, on alignment and a measure on partnership. Because when we're doing our research, there is research at the foundation of this. And we lay that out right in, I don't remember, maybe chapter seven or eight in the book. Uh, maybe you remember, Seth. But um, the um, we lay out our research and there were no measures of alignment or partnership. So we created a measure of alignment and it didn't exist. So um, 
so many organizations say we want to be aligned we want to work together we want to be on the same tracks we want to all these terms that we use and nobody measured it and so we've created this measure of alignment and this measure of alignment is based on the marriage and family literature when people talk about spouses being aligned and partnered. So we found similar items in that literature and created uh, a, an alignment scale for organizations to use, which, by the way, is freely available on our website. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I want to go back to the notion of meaningful partnership. And Tim, Tim mentioned that it, you know, it's, it's, has impact. It goes above and beyond. It has legacy. And we, we like that notion that it makes partnership, not just ordinary teamwork, not just ordinary collaboration, not just, you know, walk in the park, uh, you know, doing stuff together, but it goes above and beyond. And it's an exercise we do when we take teams through the workplace covenant process. We usually as kind of an icebreaker, we divide the group in half and we have half the group think about the best partnerships they've ever had in their work, in their work experience, whether that was with a boss or a teammate or a group of people or some outside parties they were linked closely with. What was the best partnership like? What were the factors? And then what was the worst partnership like? And you can guess what those lists, you know, would, would have on them. You know, the best partnerships, you know, we, we celebrated wins. We laughed. We're on the same page. No one took credit. No egos. Worst partnership, you know, there was sexism. There was discrimination. There was ego. There was selfishness. There was misalignment, et cetera. And everyone can relate to a great partnership they've had. Most people, if they've been working for a while, have had at least one important work relationship that went above and beyond, had impact, got them in their career to the next level that was meaningful. So it has, it has um, immediate traction for people when we say a meaningful partnership. Everyone can think of at least one or two of those. Yeah. And the results you get with that person or in that team, if it's a multiple meaningful partnership, connections is astounding i'm just thinking from my own reflection it's too true what what gets in the way of this guys so if we go the key elements here we're talking is you know have those you know those authentic abundant conversations build empathy build respect through that two-way serving each other but also you know the conversations build trust falls out of that and i'm sure there's other elements to trust get alignment through being really good at having that vision, that purpose, that those goals that we're aligned towards and working towards that's bigger than ourselves to keep the canoe going the right direction and form out of that a meaningful partnership. What's, what stops this happening? What's the main things that gets in the way of this? Do you want to go first oh, on this? <laughs> sure. uh, narcissistic dysfunctional bosses. Uh, that's the first one that comes to mind. Maybe Tim will take the other side of that coin, but I'll, I'll speak to the leader part of it. And that is there's a subset of leaders, you know, in the book, we project that maybe it's 5%. It, it is not by any means the majority. I, I know everyone will read the book and say, oh, well, I know a boss who would never want to go through this process and be held accountable to behavior. And that's probably true, but we think it's a fairly small group once they understand the benefits. There'll be some natural anxiety and intimidation around having to document behaviors they owe to their team and then help be accountable to them. But I, I think, um, and having seen a few of these up close in my career, but frankly, not that many, the, the absolutely narcissistic, uh, snap-tempered, totally insecure, uh, immature manager, that type of person, that's what gets them. That, they will never enter into this kind of mutually supportive relationship because they're just not capable. Uh, Tim? Well, 
similarly, there's team members who are um, completely resistant to change and I think unwilling to look at how their own behavior contributes to the situation. And so I don't know if I'd use the term narcissistic, but they expect their bosses to do everything for that team rather than taking personal accountability for doing things. And, and this process of creating meaningful partnership creates accountability um, for both parties, because it really is. And this is why I fell in love with this back in, I don't know, 2007, 2008, when Seth's, Seth and I first started talking about it. The idea of working through a workplace covenant is not a one-shot deal, but it's part of a uh, enterprise excellence focuses on continuous improvement. So um, it's part of a PDCA cycle, um, plan, do, check, and adjust. It is absolutely a core part of continuous uh, improvement, but it's continuous improvement for the relationships because it's not a one-shot deal. It's not a, a <laughs> consultant comes in and says, hey, let's do this and let's be done. Um, it truly is something that's ongoing that people post at their desk that they look at, that they bring up in reviews, that they bring up in one-on-one -on -one talks, and that they have formal reviews on and are willing to be evaluated on it in future formal reviews every two to three months. And actually, that's one of the questions we ask after we finish helping um, organizations with a workplace covenant. Are, uh, do you agree with these items on the list? Uh, um, and are you willing to be evaluated by your team or by your leader in the future or by your peers, depending on what it is? So it is absolutely a continuous improvement process. I love what you're <clears throat> saying, Tim, because a lot of the a lot of the more recent guests I get on the podcast are focused on um, team chart, getting down to team charters, but staying to measure behaviors. They call them key behavioral indicators. So, and what you're both saying to me is that, okay, at a leadership level, what stops it is maybe a few leadership behaviors and that can be driven by narcissism or it could be driven by a lack of understanding or just learnt behavior from past. But then also what can break it from a frontline crew point of view is maybe one or two team members that have some behaviors that are dysfunctional. The way to combat that is by having a workplace covenant or a team charter or a team, a team mandate or behavioral norm that we can measure, track, review, and run PDCA cycles on to help improve our culture. Yes, sir. So I, I want to, just take a second on the word covenant. So for some people, it's an off-putting term because it has a religious connotation and a biblical one. We don't mean it like that. Um, we mean it in the sense of a set of promises that have obligatory weight. Uh, we didn't like the word, and this was suggested to me once by a client, why not call it a workplace commitment? Or why not call it workplace promises? Or, you know, a workplace contract? And we rejected those because certainly commitments and promises are broken all the time. Like, as I like to joke, like twigs in the forest, <laughs> you know, you walk over them, break, 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 break. Um, they're broken all the time in families and organizations and by politicians. We were talking off camera about politicians. Uh, so that word didn't have enough weight. Uh, contract sounds too legal and you get into the notion of consequences for breakage. And we didn't really want to go there. We wanted to stick with personal and professional integrity. Your honor is what's at stake, not whether you keep, keep your job or lose your bonus. We, we didn't want to go there with those sort of material consequences, but it's your honor and, and you do your best because 
you know, you you made a you you made a solemn uh, covenantal uh, connection with respect to these behaviors. So that's that's why we chose the word covenant. Yeah, that's neat. the the obligatory weight of that term. I I think it I think that's the key is it has more weight. It's I have an obligation to stick to this. When I was first involved in deploying enterprise excellence, I gained so much from being able to connect with global experts like Chris Butterworth, Alex Tia, and Peter Hines. They shared their knowledge, but they also inspired me to keep moving forward and played a big part in what I'm doing now. We can now offer this same opportunity to many of our listeners. We are currently forming the Enterprise Excellence Community. This community is for people practically deploying an excellence journey within their enterprise. The community allows us to link directly with our world's experts each month to learn and grow for an hour. We already have Jeff Sutherland, Jeff Leiker, Pascal Dennis, Laurent Sommer, and Lewis Trigger confirmed for the coming months. For the final hour of the gathering, we then link in small groups with our peers to help each other overcome challenges and continue to move forward towards our vision of excellence and goals within our organization. To get involved or gain more information, reach out for our website, enterpriseexcellencepodcast.com backslash contact. We look forward to talking to you soon and working together with our world's experts and each other to create a better future. What does it typically look like, um, guys? Can you describe an example of what a workplace covenant looks like? Because it sounds like it's pivotal. <laughs> yeah. I did spill coffee on it, Tim. Sorry about that. But, um, <laughs> this is my covenant to Tim that we created because we were doing consulting and we were publishing the book and knew that things like podcasts and consulting gigs would be coming. So we, we created our, our own covenant. Um, in the book, there are some wonderful examples. And, and actually, I was um, in North Carolina and Florida last week working with teams and doing workplace covenant sessions. And in the materials we used, um, there's a, a, a single page covenant from a, she was an HR VP. Uh, she's now become the CEO of that large nonprofit. And it's, it's a wonderful example. And it includes, from her perspective as the manager, coaching and advocacy and support and communication and encouraging professional development and being open to feedback and allowing participation in important decisions. So those were some of her obligations to her HR staff of seven or eight people. And, so the, oh, sorry. So go ahead. You keep, yeah. Yeah. And so in turn, they had an obligation to her as their team up to Jennifer, the manager of, you know, fulfilling goals that were set collaboratively of giving her that feedback of ensuring they're professionally qualified and staying up to date and, and sharpening their skills of cabinet solidarity, a, a term implying that they will adhere to decisions once they're made collectively and not undermine group decisions. You know, if the group makes a decision on something, they're not going to go bad mouth it. Um, so these were some of the obligations the team had back up to Jennifer. Yeah, that's neat. And for the listeners to the podcast, it, Seth and, and Tim, am I right that what you just showed me was a document where in that document, there was a number of behaviors written down that we'd, we'd live by. So it was about eight, seven or eight on that sheet. And then you'd sign to it and spilt coffee on the corner of it. But it, it um, is that correct? Is that what I'm seeing? Is I'm seeing that really that you, you have both sat down and you've gone right to be a highly functional, you know, have a meaningful partnership between Seth and Tim. These are the behaviors we need to exude. And this is the covenant we're going to live by. And then right. how do you bring that to life then? 
it's these behavioral and attitudinal obligations we have to one another. Um, so for instance, it's uh, um, Seth is when we do work together with clients, Seth's often almost always the primary person with the client. And one of my obligations to Seth is to make sure that I'm delivering something on time with enough time so that he can review it and get it to the client. Um, and, and by the way, I, I will jokingly say, these obligations come from somewhere. <laughs> they come from past history sometimes, and they come yeah. from our baggage and things we've not done mistakes. and mistakes we've made. Yeah. So um, it, it doesn't mean it's all roses. We oh, do yeah. actually it's then. Not, um, I have to interrupt. I mean, my, my number one uh, covenantal obligation to Tim is recognize Tim's many other obligations in brackets, <laughs> his, his, his university, his ski patrol, his family, his other books. And why did that come about? Because, uh, yeah, and sometimes I've called him up when he's actually on a ski mountain uh, providing first aid to somebody, or I've, you know, asked him for a, a, a calendar check on, and he's teaching a class at, at the university or something. So, right, we, we've come up with these obligations based on experience. Yeah. Uh, and that the, is cool. And the key here is the review. And this, again, is why I fell in love with this process, is that you, you have to be willing to talk about these things and take feedback and act on the feedback informally and formally. And this is the beauty. This is the strength is that um, Seth and I, we use this as an example. Seth and I have held each other, held our feet to the fire, actually, on, on some of these obligations we have, my obligation and his obligation to me. Um, but in a team and leader, they, they the best thing is, um, these reviews every two to three months where they actually sit down and go over line by line. How am I doing on this? Is it a thumbs up, thumbs to the side, thumbs down, uh, plus my, however you want to do it. But is it, is it working or it's not? How can I improve? And what are some specific examples that you can give me if I'm not perfect and how I can improve? Because um, it's about improvement. Yeah, so, that's easy. That's so awesome. I thought about feedback. And, and again, when we write version two, we'll, we'll include Tim a couple of pages on this because we don't really get into it in detail. But in, in talking about the book, this has become very prominent, is the notion of taking the feedback exchange in the same spirit as if you were getting coaching on something of sport. I, I don't know, Brad, if you play tennis or if you play golf or, you know, I, I'm a yeah. hockey guy, I play road hockey and stuff. So, I mean, if you can imagine back to the days in school, maybe where you were on a sports team and your coach would say, you know, hey, Brad, when you're kicking the soccer ball, turn your foot a little bit more on an angle. Um, and you never got defensive about that. You would say, what, you're offending me? I, you know, I don't do that already now. Of course I do. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, shut down that feedback. You would say, oh, thanks, coach because you know it would make you a better player and your team would stand a better chance of winning. And it's that sports mindset around feedback that I, if I could wave my magic Harry Potter wand, would, would be involved with every covenant review because and rather than being defensive and rather than responding to feedback emotionally or um, rejecting it out of hand, looking at it in the same way as if it was a sports bit of coaching advice and you would say, oh, that thanks coach. I mean, thank you for sharing that because now I will perform better on the ice or on the field or, you know, whatever. Yeah, court. that's neat. So it really sounds to me again, that element of, you know, engaging in these conversations with humility and humbleness. And then also, I guess, showing respect to each other for the feedback and thankfulness in some regards. I got to admit guys, um, my family, we have a, um, 
we have a team charter with four pillars and uh, two behaviors against each that we review every Sunday. And we, we give each other feedback and talk to each other about it. That's my daughter, my son, my wife, and I, and even my share one of the pillars. Uh, it's lo- loving. So just, you know, that loving relationship wow. and a behavior against that is, you know, helping each other anytime we're, we're asked and, you know, looking out for each other when we need help. And yeah, even my three-year-old daughter really engages in it. I got to admit, we put a, we do put a score to, to it or a one to five rating, um, which my daughter struggles with a little bit. Are you rating your wife on, on loving? <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. I'm not sure I want to go there. I got to admit, we do. We do. How long did you say you've been married and how long? Did you say? No, I've been married for 23 years and it's been oh. really powerful. It's been really yeah. cool. And um, yeah, it's helped. Like we've, it's helped just get us, it helps keep us focused because to me, my family is the most important, you know, and um, we, yeah, it's really helped us. So I don't know. I can, I can vouch for it in a, it could now be dangerous. You, so be careful, but it's worked it really well for us. Covenant instead of a team charter or family charter, how would that go over? Do you think in your, uh, it's, it sounds like you're taking the promises and, and obligations very, very seriously, yeah. but um, yeah. And it's, I think a powerful factor of it is that we, we came up with it together. You know, it's, it's, I guess there's a conversation there and that isn't it? It's how do you come up with that, that team covenant, you know? Exactly. Well, that's, that's what happens with teams and managers. And so just again, coming back to last week when I was traveling and working with this particular uh, set of uh, teams in this one company, a high tech company, a lot of these were mostly engineers. Um, there was skepticism. I mean, they sort of walked in not knowing what to expect. They had seen an email, you know, with two or three sentences as to what was going to happen. The managers had some sense of it because I had worked with them at a previous session. They all had the book, but uh, the team members didn't. And once they started to wrap their head around what do we owe our manager, what specific behaviors and what do we expect from our manager and what questions do we want to ask our manager? And then part B was what do we owe each other, this peer covenant notion, all of a sudden, there wasn't a quiet voice in the room. They were all participating and, you know, people do become committed to the things they help create. So as they started to list these things on the flip chart, there was just full engagement in the room. And then when we did the compare and contrast of the manager's obligations to the team and the team's expectations of the manager, and, you know, all eyes were riveted because, you know, clearly these lists should be somewhat similar, but where they were different was, was great fodder for conversation. So I, I love what you guys have written about. Like this is, this is a hot topic and so pertinent. I know that the, I know that the whole lean industry and CI industry is working so hard to get more base to this behavioral piece. Like so many key players are trying to get away from tools and techniques and get to this behavioral place where how do we actually focus on the behavior and the purpose and the outcomes rather than focus on the systems, you know, like 5S or, you know, all this type of technique, you know, all this side. And I think you've, I guess too, I'd say from your academic background and all the work you've done with clients, you've brought together an amazing book that pulls together a way that organizations can get and actually lead and develop culture. In a, in a systematic way. There is a systematic approach to what you've done. So credit to you both. Thank you. On, on this, what would be your two-minute tip? If you had someone in an elevator and it was a long elevator ride and you had two minutes to give them a tip 
on enterprise excellence that relates to you know meaningful partnership at work what would be that two-minute tip seth and i'll come to you tim okay well, I'm going to slightly change it and share with, with you and the audience uh, how I framed it with the teams I worked with last week. And I shared with them that if I was asked by a brand new manager who had never managed before, what is the essence of managing slash leading? And please tell me, Seth, in that two-minute elevator ride while you stand on one foot. Uh, my answer would be provide support and help them succeed. You know, everything else is commentary. Everything else can, can be come back to later. But think about from their perspective, what do they need to feel supported? Because I think in the workplace and in life generally, I mean, you, you introduced the notion of family and I would come back to my spouse or my kids or my brother or, you know, my dad, et cetera. What, what do you need to do to help the other side feel supported? However, they define support, not how do I define support, but how do they define support? There are some obvious things and those should be concentric circles, but I guarantee you there's ways they feel support that you haven't thought of. So I would say help the other side feel supported and then, you know, help them succeed again in whatever focus that that happens to be for them or your connection with them. Um, I think those two things are, are really kind of the essence of it uh, for a leader. I think that would help a leader be successful with his, her team and with his, her boss and with his, her clients and customers. Yeah, that's awesome. And Tim, over to yourself, Tim, what would be your two minute tip on enterprise excellence in relation to your ever area of expertise with meaningful partnership to help people achieve greater outcomes and move forward. You know, mine, I think is very related to Seth. My area is industrial and organizational psychology, but all over time, I've really focused more and more on how do we develop people? How do we help people to improve? How do we help get them out of that static zone where they're afraid of change and get them to, to do better? Adam Grant had a great quote today about uh, the goal in life. Um, so I encourage you to go read Adam Grant's quote today, uh, which is on my Instagram page now, because it was fabulous about, all right, what we want out of life is, is really to improve and be happy. And the core job whether leaders see this or not, the core job of anybody who's a leader is to develop their people. That is number one. It's not to protect the finances. It's, it's not to set the vision. It's to develop the people. And there's a lot of things that come along with that. But how do we develop people? How do we get them to reach that higher level? How do we make people better than us? I, I'm department chair and a program director here at St. John Fisher, again, for both of them. And how do I find a, uh, somebody who can replace me in seven or eight years when I retire, who is better than me, who can take this department farther? I think your kids be are better than all of us, right, Tim? Your yeah. kids are better well, than you. My kids are yeah. better than me. <laughs> I think we have been developing people in our lives. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and I, I said this, I just sent an email about this, uh, out about this to the Dean and some other people that our students here. And I think it's, I, I'm so done with the millennial generation bashing that this, the, the students today are way more focused and way better than I was at that age. I just have the benefit of being 57. So <laughs> Tim, I, I agree with you. Like to me, millennial bashing is, Nuts. I haven't met, and I can reflect on a few generations, okay? But throughout the generations I reflect on, I've not met a more 
meaningful, purposeful, driven group of kids that are actually starting to think long term. You know, I got to admit, when I got out of uni, it was all just about, okay, earn money and get a house. These kids, it's about, well, how do we help the planet? And how do we help that local society? And yes, I'm finding it a bit tough financially and I'm living in a share home of six people, but, you know, I'm, I don't really care about that. I'm focused on a bigger cause. Credit to them. Yeah. They're going to make change, positive change and help people. So yeah, I yeah, agree. It's amazing. So, and they're finding that, I will say too, I think through more sort of humanistic um, ideologies and less religious. Uh, I think the millennial generation today that I've seen is, is less tied to organized religion for the most part, but they've picked up the important values, the, the good values from organized religion, I think. And, and they're living their lives with, with some of those themes in mind, whether they got that from their parents or society or whatever. But I agree with you that they're looking at the big picture, the, the notion of saving the planet and helping people who are less fortunate. It's just in their DNA. Um, yeah. And, and I think that is, that is, uh, that is cause for optimism. Yeah. I was running a customer journey mapping event, you know, to help this organization yesterday. And you could just see every millennial kept bringing it back to environment. They're a packaging company. So every millennial in the room just kept bringing it back to the bigger purpose, back to the bigger purpose, back to the bigger purpose. And it was impressive. They did it in a very well, good way too, to keep that focus. But there wasn't one of them who in that room that was not fired up about the bigger picture. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't right. it? Guys, well, like the final question I've always got for guests and I'll, I'll start with you, Tim, is what's been a recent insight for you, a recent learning, something you didn't know before? A recent insight is, um, and I'm at heart, a professor. I love teaching. A recent insight is I will never teach a hybrid class again. <laughs> I, <laughs> so I, I, I teach online, which I love and really has benefits. It's not the end all be all, but there's certain, certainly benefits to online teaching. And there's certainly benefits to face-to-face, -face, which I prefer by far. I think students get a lot more out of it. But I, I recently, this semester, taught a hybrid class, which was half face-to-face -face and half remote. And it was a nightmare. And so I will, that's a recent insight. I just put it on my annual faculty evaluation. So um, today, as a matter of fact. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a nightmare. I've been there too. Yeah. Hats off. <laughs> What about you, Seth? What's been a recent insight for you that you didn't know before? Yeah, on a little bit more of a somber note. So uh, my dad is going through elder care. Tim knows all about this. And, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, um, albeit he wasn't walking fast, but he was walking and was living in the house with his wife of 42 years. And at, at that time, age 86, 87, functioning quite independently, uh, you know, the last eight months have been terrible with the stepmother, just, you know, she died of cancer. So his wife, my dad's wife of 42 years died, and then he had several falls and there's been major cognitive decline. I, I won't bore your audience with all the details, but it, it has impressed upon me a, you know, that cycle of life and mortality. It has impressed upon me uh, even more than I already knew the health habits to hopefully stab off or, or prevent some of the later in life issues of mobility or cognitive decline and having to do with diet and walking and other things that I'm not sure my dad was, was always conscious of. Um, and the extent to which it takes a village to help an older person 
and the extent to which my brother and I have become meaningful partners, actually, in, in the effort to care for my dad um, and in the professional people we've hired and in the nursing home that he is in. Um, so it's, it's been a chapter of my life I probably intellectually knew was coming, uh, but didn't think much about and probably didn't want to think much about. Uh, but now that it's here, it's kind of, you know, six inches in front of the face, so to speak. And so it's been a world of learning about the uh, issues around elder care from, from you know, the cognitive side and, and um, PT, the physiotherapy side, and, and what kinds of range from lousy to wonderful, um, you know, retirement community slash nursing home uh, availabilities there are. So um, it's, it's been eye-opening. Um, in some ways, it's, and I will say on a positive note, it's led to some really very cool, gratifying moments between my brother and me and my two step-siblings. Uh, as we've come together to help dad, um, it's put me in a sort of emotionally vulnerable place, which I will thank Tim for being so respectful of and inquiring about and supportive of. So, um, you know, Tim and I are obviously good friends. That's That's been a, a really valuable and much appreciated um, uh, piece of this. So, you know, you've asked me what, what insights I've had. Uh, yeah. That's it. <laughs> you had... Tough Part insights from a tough, tough time, tough phase of life. But it's mm. interesting the the elements you've seen that relate back to your work too. Like, yeah, tough. Mm-hmm. So, look, guys, moving forward, how can people get hold of the book? How can people reach out to you if they want to get in touch and learn more or get some help? So for me, I'm, uh, to get the book is easy. Amazon is the best uh, choice. I hate to say it because it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a behemoth and it's easy to get to. So um, you can also get it, of course, from our publisher, Taylor and Francis. Um, if, if you happen to be in Rochester, New York, there's a stack over my shoulder. And I, I will, if, you're, if you're here, I will give you one if you come in, especially from Australia. Um, I, I will definitely give you a book. Um, but uh, uh to reach me, I'm active on LinkedIn, uh, Tim Franz Consulting, uh, and I have a website, teambuildingprocess.com. So LinkedIn or teambuildingprocess.com. Thanks, Tim. What about you, Seth? Oh, I'm reachable on LinkedIn as well, um, Seth R. Silver, and I am also, uh, I have a website, uh, silverconsultinginc.com. Repeat, silverconsultinginc.com. Um, and then those are probably the best ways to, to reach me. Yeah. Well, Tim and Seth, thank you so much, guys. Thank you for writing such an amazing book. Thank you for the work you continue to do. And thanks for helping us create a better future. I, I really gained a lot of value myself from this episode and I look forward to our listeners gaining a lot from it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Brad. Thank you, Brad. All the best. Yeah. There were two key takeaways for me from this episode. Firstly, develop and support your people, two people in the canoe. That image and description Seth and Tim described was amazing. You know, does your team have a common vision of where they're going and that common goal? Have they got the process and the rhythm to work together in that canoe to keep the canoe moving towards that goal gradually step by step? The second key takeaway for me was develop a work covenant to improve behavioral and attitudinal obligations that we all have to one another in our organization. Now, this is such a powerful approach that has been spoken about by a number of guests in relation to team charters and leading culture. You know, having that covenant where you define your values but look at key behaviors against those, just a few that you're going to measure, review, track, 
call each other out on um, constructively with respect. Help each other grow and improve and achieve that covenant. What a great approach. What a great episode. Thank you so much again, Seth and Tim. Thanks for helping us create a better future. Bye for now.